We've all been there, in the middle of a job, everything going smoothly, until boom, you're missing a part. United Refrigeration is your one-stop shop for all your refrigeration needs. Use your computer or smartphone to go to www.uri.com at any time of day or night to check stock on your favorite brands, such as Copeland, Sporlin, Carlisle Compressors, Danfoss, Emerson CPC Boards and Sensors, Carell, Hussman Parts, and Ketotherm. United Refrigeration Inc. is home to these brands and many more. Looking for information on refrigerant conversions or refrigerant banking? Quick access links on the homepage can get you to the information you need. All approved accounts are able to see live to the minute inventory and pricing. Product not in stock at your local branch? No problem. Use the nearby stock feature to find a local branch that does have what you need. Are you looking for a branch address, phone number, or after hours number? That's all available as well. Just click on the branch locator and search for your local branch. Have a model number and looking for a replacement part? www.uri.com forward slash ARP has a vast list of quick pick replacement parts. Just search for the model number of the equipment you're working on and click the replacement parts tab. If you don't have an account, click the register button and we'll have you online in no time. With more than 400 locations in North America, each United Refrigeration branch is fully stocked for immediate pickup. Our branch employees have in-depth technical knowledge so we can help you get what you need when you need it. Visit your local store or www.uri.com forward slash ARP today. United Refrigeration Inc. has all your solutions down cold. John, how can you always have the right TV for the right application without carrying hundreds of valves on your truck? You can carry the hundreds of valves on a trailer behind your truck. That's too funny. That would work, but how are you going to do that? Maybe there's an easier way. You can use Sporlin's interchangeable cartridge style Type-Q and Type-BQ uh, TEVs. Type-Q is a conventional design and Type-BQ is a balanced port TEV. Well, come on, I need easy. How easy is it? Uh, easy is one, two, three. And it serves thousands of unique applications. So what's the process? How do I put this together? First, you select the thermostatic element assembly. Then you select the body that you need. Then you select the right size cartridge for the application to get the proper capacity TEV for your application. And then I guess it should also be said you want to actually assemble those to a single valve. That'd probably be a good idea. Indeed. These easy to select and assemble valves mean you're always carrying the right valve for the right job then. If folks want to learn more, what do they do? Uh, you can go to sporland.com and find more information on the Type Q and BQ thermostatic expansion valves. I guess that's Jim and John for Sporland signing off. Good evening, everybody, and welcome to Advanced Refrigeration Podcast. You're here with your host, Brett Wetzel, Kevin Compass, and we have a special guest, Andre Patinode from uh, Emerson, uh, Emerson Technologies. What's going on tonight, Andre? Hey, Brett, Kevin, nice to be here. Thanks a lot. Appreciate the opportunity to uh, be able to talk to you guys. You know, we were talking at AHR and uh, talking about all kinds of cool CO2 stuff. So we thought we'd get back together and shoot the shit. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. 100%, man. Um, yeah. So, Andre, how's your week going? 
Good, good. It's been a it's been a busy week. Getting ready for next week. Hot off to California for some training. So we're doing some uh, end user training next week. End user and uh, consultants and OEMs. I guess that's the bulk of it. And then the week after, I guess we'll see you at the NASRC technician training. Yeah, uh, Kevin, are you are you going to that? No. You're not going. No. Damn it. <laughs> I was all excited and thought you were going to be there too. So if, you know, not that Kevin's been tired of me talking about this, but out in California, out in Irwindale, they're having the uh, natural refrigerant summit uh, put on by the uh, North American sustainable refrigerant council going on the week of uh, April 4th to the 6th. It's jam packed with anyone, anyone from Emerson's going to be there. Dan Foss is going to be there. Uh, Corral's going to be there. Bitzer's going to be there. Man, the list just goes on of everyone's that's going to be out there. It's going to be freaking amazing. Yeah, Zero Zone, a whole bunch of them. Yeah, Zero Zone, Hussman. Um, yep. It was actually real cool. So I worked with uh, Danielle Wright, and she she called me. She's like, who do you think would be good to get out there? And I gave her – we were on the phone for damn near two hours, and I'm just like giving her the laundry list of, of people who I thought that you know we should have out there. And, and man, she came through. I don't think there – other than I think Gutner – and BAC were the only people, but I, man, I don't even think we could fit any more training in there if we could. I mean, it's it's literally jam packed. There's a ton of sessions. I think there's over seventy in three days or something. There's there's a lot going on. Yeah. So if the registration is still open, so you know, uh, you know, just Google the North American Sustainable Refrigerant Council. Um, listen, I've posted a whole bunch on LinkedIn and on uh, the Facebook group as far as advanced refrigeration as well as my personal. So, I mean, registration is still open for technicians. It's free to go. Um, you yep. just got to convince your boss, man, of how much it's going to, you know, help you out. You know, Kev, what yeah, do you got going yeah. on this week? Oh, sorry. What's that? No, <laughs> Kev, what do you got going on this week? Oh, I'm just, uh, I'm just running service. Oh, really? Yeah, just, yeah, kind of slow. So it's like boring service, like no disasters, no nothing fun like fan motors out and it's just like i'm beating my head against the wall it's like i it, it's it is i i have never been so bored this this week already you know what's gonna happen next week now right well i i, I would take a good disaster i would take a good disaster good shit show you know something <laughs> something bad like just you know something besides just fan motors and you know De-icing a case, like regular, I, that, that that kills me. <laughs> the regular mundane stuff, right? Oh yeah, you like got three more days. What's that, Andre? You got three more days. The, the stuff that some guys <laughs> like look forward exciting. to, just a fan motor or something easy. Like, yeah, at the end of the day, I'll take that. But like, oh, all day long, that is just the most boring day ever. And then tomorrow he's going to be like, oh, man, today fucking sucked. I don't even want to come in. I was out all night. I had an explosion on this. <laughs> so I, I, I should have a bunch of jobs, but we have no parts to do anything. So <laughs> but there's a part shortage since when? Since, yeah, since ever, like or, or cases just don't show up the jobs. That's awesome. That's awesome. I'm actually I'm I'm home this week. I'm I'm actually teaching that that class that I've been developing. Uh, this is our first first week doing it. I don't know why, man. I was so nervous today. Um, like usually teaching, like I have no problem just you know talking, chewing the fat or whatever. But I like I don't know if it was the fact that I, that I developed it 
you know, was the, the fact that I was so nervous about it. Like, cause I, I, man, I've been going over this thing for weeks, making sure. And then like, all of a sudden I'll realize, Oh, I didn't put this down. Oh, I didn't put this down. But this is good. Cause like the guys are, you know, guys are getting involved in the conversation and, you know, has their talk. And I'm like, Oh, hold on. So like someone brought up the bits are the bits are unloading module, you know? So I was like, all right, well, next time I'm going to throw that in there. So like, it's good. I'm getting feedback of what the guys are seeing out there and, you know, being able to, you know, cross off some of the stuff that, that I wrote down, maybe the stuff I went too too far in depth. Like I, I covered the sky cool system, you know, cause they're going to be seeing it. Right. We want to make sure, you know, the part of the, this whole part of the training was to make sure that I'm covering stuff that usually isn't covered in a regular conventional uh, intro to CO2 training. So, but um, tonight we have Andre uh, on and we're going to just, like I said, chew the fat about some refrigeration, about some CO2. And uh, uh, Andre, what else What else you got going on in your, your world of the corner? What are you working on? Oh, working on some white papers, working on, uh, well, the presentation uh, for NASRC. You talked about a new presentation. And uh, um, Kevin, I don't know if you know this, but we have a, a transcritical mobile trainer. I've been working with uh, with Brett on. Um, have you ever heard of it? Oh yeah, I, I get to hear about it at least fifteen times a week, and it's all conversation with everybody about that about how he's mobile CO two trainer. But, you know what? I, I had one first. You did. We had one two years. We had one two years ago at our union hall that you guys. I, I, I wasn't in charge of training at that point, so now I'm excited. I'm sorry. That's right. That's I, I'm pretty sure we had the one of the first first ones you guys made. Um, it was an uh, LMP Emerson. Uh, yeah. Uh, it, it's in our uh, union hall, like the very very first version. Yeah, it had two sections, right? It had a pump skid section, and then the refrigeration part, and they were they were plumbed together by flex hoses. That was the original version. So ours is after that. So ours was, it was one skid. It had two evaporators on it, a little boiler. Um, yep. Little mini uh, Copeland compressors with drives. Yep. That's cool. You know, Andrew just brought yeah. that up because he knew it was going to irritate you. <laughs> so <laughs> when you talk about that, because I've been working on a new presentation too, is taking that trainer and, and blowing up the using the PNID and kind of walking through each section of the PNID and then then taking a picture so we can associate the PNID with the actual unit. And after the training course is over, then the guys can go around the unit and kind of identify all the parts and direction and, and what, you know where the heat exchangers are and so on and so forth. So so that was a, a new one kind of putting together and getting ready for next week so that'll be a new one cool and you, you said you had something going out in ohio what do you got going on there yeah i was in ohio well ohio is is actually where the trainer was so i was doing some work with that trainer and uh so i go to ohio all the time because it's about four and a half hours from here and i report directly to sydney ohio so there's always something going on there whether it's a customer visit uh colleague visit meetings or, you know, doing some training or, or whatever the case may be. So there's always something going on, whether at the Innovation Center in Dayton or at the head office in Sydney. Gotcha. So, yeah, lots going on. Awesome. 
Well, Kev, you want to start in because you had some questions for Andre that you wanted to, you know, try to try to get some answers for. So let's let's get on it. So I wanted to like start off talking about like gas cooler control. You know, we started talking about with you and Waylon about about all this and about like a lot of the stuff we see. Like so, like gas cooler control. Like it seems like every OEM like we're failing with the gas cooler control. It's just like all over the place. And it seems to be like nobody has a clear, you know, cut answer of like how to make this work right. But it seems like the 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 answer of everybody is using drop like temp. And the way they're controlling the fans, like it just seems like it's all over the place and it just has such poor control. I mean, especially when it's cold out. When it's warm out, it's it's you know, okay, decent, but I mean it seems like we're having so many problems with like maintaining, you know, good uh, flash tank pressures and good like head pre- or discharge pressures and drop leg pressures with using drop leg temp. It's just all over the place. And it seems like it's fighting the, the uh, high pressure valves also. Is that because you're going really lower? How, how low are the head? Uh, are you, are you running? Typically, how, what are they set them up to? Usually like 45 to 50. Oh, 45 to 50. Okay. Yeah, 45 to 50 uh, drop leg temp. Okay, because we, we were we, – we had a, a job about a year ago where the customer kept wanting to get 45 to 50 degrees, and this was a, a process job instead of a supermarket job. So a little bit different because the system would cycle off once in a while. But uh, we found that uh, exactly what you were saying, when, when they got below 60 degrees, um, then things started losing control. And we, we dial into, I know Brent Sheshar, myself, and even and Mike Hill, we'd look at the, the logs and try to understand what's going on because you've got compressor cycling, you talked about, you've got your fans, your fan variable fan speed, uh, and then you've got the high pressure in the bypass valve and all these things are not, in balance and we couldn't seem to stabilize the system um, when it got so cold and increasing that minimum drop leg to 60 degrees seemed to kind of settle things out and and, and you know and I've had this conversation with Wynand as well um, about that and when we did our climate study because he's done a lot of these jobs in low ambient as well as of course all around the world and his minimum set point that he recommends is around 60 degree because he finds that the gas cooler becomes so bloody efficient in those low ambience that you reach the pinch point real quick. And then so your, your ambient reaches condensing or so fast that everything tries to equalize or balance itself out and it can't. Um, so he finds that changing that set point to a minimum 60 degrees seems to really settle things out. So we actually did that at this job and things did settle out um, at that point. And I was talking also to uh, Alain Mongrain, who's our, my colleague in Quebec, our contractor business development manager, who's been also doing CO2 for, you know, supporting CO2 jobs since 2014. Um, and, and I asked him that same question. That's exactly what he had mentioned too. We don't like to go below 60 ambient, uh, six, not ambient, 60 drop like temperature, which is about 
you know, 50 degree ambient or something around that, right? Depending on the TD on that gas cooler. And it seems to really stabilize operation. And like I said, with our supermarket lab that we're, we're getting up and running and doing some baselining, we're going to be able to really understand the real nature of all of those things. Because we're going to have a sandbox that we can do it. We could do the 60, we could do the 40, we can do even lower if we want to and understand what's going on in that gas cool, understand, you know, where that ambient hits the condensing temperature and what happens in the rest of the gas cooler for fans and, and everything else to try to balance itself out. So probably didn't answer your question that clearly, but from, you know, uh, talking to guys like Vinan and others, that seems to have been, uh, you know, a, a, a fix. Yeah, I'm seeing a lot of problems too, like in like colder climates. When I mean, these racks run fine when it's like 60, 70 degrees out. Mm -hmm. it, but as soon as we start getting into like, you know, the 20s and 10s, the way that most of these fan, uh, these gas cooler fans strategies are set up is very few people are cycling the fans. It's usually just all of them on or all of them off and like on a variable speed it's usually all like four or five fans ramping up at the same time and then ramping down together at the same time which seems to be causing you know a lot of hunting obviously sure sure and on a lot of and these gas coolers now they actually they're all mod bus together so i don't even know if it's if it's feasible you know like typically if it's controlled with like a zero to ten signal you know like what kevin has said that he's done in the past is just use a relay to basically either give it the 10 volts to make it run down 0% on, you know, that one side of the gas cooler. Um, would it be a, uh, Kevin, would it be a minimum set point on the, on the controller, whatever controls, whatever is controlling the HPV, um, you know, where it doesn't have a set point in there where it's actually showing your minimum saturated condensing temperature for that, or am I wrong? So they have a minimum gas cooler pressure setting in like the 326 and i believe it's also in the ipro there's a minimum gas cooler pressure to where that uh, hpv valve turns into basically a holdback valve to try to keep the gas cooler pressure up uh, but i mean that that's where you're walking this fine line of you know pressure and temperature trying to you know keep that you know keep your drop leg temperature you know up high enough where it's not going to hit that that setting and then also the fan cutout setting and whatever controller you're using. So there, there still yeah. is some pressure control there, but. One, one of the things that we had recommended, I think we talked about this at AHR, um, was and you just mentioned that all the fans ramping up and down at the same time. And this particular job we were talking, I think they had 10 or 12 fans and they were all doing this. And so we had recommended, you know, breaking them up in, in banks of two um in order when it gets colder and colder and then you've got some more variability that you don't have all this volume of air even at minimum speed when it's 20 degrees fahrenheit that's a lot of condensing power there um whereas splitting them up i don't think they ever did that but um that was one of the recommendations that we had we passed along as well yeah i mean it I seems like an easy it seems like a really easy thing to do, especially on, on a new piece of equipment. But like, it just seems like none of the manufacturers are going that way. Like, there's, they, right. it almost needs to be an industry change 
industry standard change like to to do that it's just like everybody's pushing for this you know one ec you know solution that everything's on and everybody's off yeah yeah that that, that doesn't help you in the field when it's 20 degrees outside correct yeah i do That's know sure. i do know that emerson is working on uh basically uh making the ipro at least on their settings like make making the the inputs for some of the, for some of the uh, percentages and stuff actually writable. So like you could do some sort of um, sensor control or whatever, you know, m maintaining whatever number to try to, you know, uh, mitigate like the, the large jump. So you can actually, you can have a calculation basically rather than a stagnant set point for, for some of those things in the iPro controller. Um, I saw some emails go, go along about that. And I know that they've been working on that. So I don't know if that'll that'll help out your situation, but I agree. I mean, they should just they should be able to bank off those fans. And I, yeah. I just that's something I don't know. I don't know, you know, when they're modbus together, I don't know if you have that full capability unless your controller itself, you know, has the availability. Okay, let's talk to fan number one and two, and I just want those on. You know what I mean? I do think mm -hmm. you'd be able to have a little bit better control if it's modbus together, wouldn't you think, Kev? Well, yeah, I mean you should. I know they they just got that Gutner controller that you know finally interface with the E2. I know it works with the E3, but like it's, but yeah, like that being able to you know cycle your fans if if the E3 is doing you know the fan control and just you know talking and writing to that Gutner controller. I mean that would be a you know a huge thing to be able to split right. that up and it'd be a, a, a cheaper cost. But I mean that's all like what, if you could read and write to those points. Yeah, and that's one of the things that uh, we also hope that the lab is going to do is, is is build collaborative, you know, collaborative uh, uh, meetings and uh, efforts within OEMs. You talk about Gutner and, of course, others to be able to work through these things together. Um, that'd be good. Yeah, I mean that that seems to be like one of my biggest gripes with CO two is like they they run pretty decent you know 70 80 degree weather and like they you struggle you struggle a little bit when we go transcritical but like man i'm up in chicago and like we just struggle all winter long at some of these stores with low load i mean it's just yeah. uh that's the problem right it's not just low ambient it's low load in the winter yep i mean right. we do a lot of aldi stores and like they, they throw the nightshades down and uh right. i mean there's not very much in an aldi store and they throw the nightshades down and then boom, all loads gone. And then we're right. stuck with a compressor that can only go down to 25%. And it's just uh it's a struggle and all night long. Short short cycling, sitting there short cycle, Kev. Yeah, like it'll 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 just short cycle. I mean the, the only load is basically the you know dairy cooler and uh if the freezer's at temp, it's pretty much dead in the water, and then the flash tank, which you don't have right. much flash tank load. And then your does your flash tank pressure then end up going up high and potentially popping off then because of, the, of all the cycle? No, it usually ends up like just hunting all over the place. So we, we were kind of messing with some settings and uh, on the three twenty sixes, and I mean it, it would almost seem like I made a mistake and I fat fingered something, and we were watching it run, and uh, it actually ended up opening the HPV valve because it thought the subcooling was way higher. And it actually kept the rack pretty loaded because I, I, I had messed up the minimum uh, 
or the maximum receiver pressure, I ended up setting it like uh, another 70 pounds higher. And it ended up pegging the HPV valve open like another 15, 20%. And it actually <laughs> loaded up the splash tank pressure right. and then loaded up the rack. Right. So medium temps started coming on because of your bypass flash gas was so high. Well, high relative to what it was. And it gave you stability. Correct. And like looking at that and watching it, this is this was like it was like five degrees outside, super low load in the store. They still had nightshades down, but it was enough to load up the variable speed compressor. It was enough to keep the ECM fans. They were, you know, stable. They maybe came on like five, 10 percent. But I mean, the compressor was running at like 45 hertz, happy as could be. I, I wonder if you would change the set point, like if, if you had a varying uh, subcooling set point, you know, if, if that, if, can, I, and I don't know this, is the 326 able to communicate to the E2? Do you don't think, is it, that's, uh, it's Modbus, but I, I don't know that it has an application. Okay. Yeah. I'm just wondering, because like if there was some way to, you know, basically change your subcooling set point, because most of these racks that I've seen, for the most part, is set for about you know anywhere from three to five degrees of subcooling. So I'm wondering if like if that rack was let's just say it's set for five degrees of subcooling, basically you change the set point to like something a little bit lower. So like and, and when I mean lower, like you know instead of five degrees of subcooling, go down to like two degrees of subcooling, which inherently would open up your your HPV right, and then would basically you know get a little bit more load on the flash tank, and then kind of resolve that issue, you know. I mean, because you inadvertently found that out when you when you fat fingered it. So based on that theory, I mean, we could basically, you know, change the subcooling set point, which essentially, like I said, open up the HPV and then get more get more flow to to the tank and load up the rack more. Yeah, I mean, you're doing that at the sacrifice of energy, but at the same time, it's cheaper than a dumpster. Well, it, yeah, it, it, there is a bit of an energy penalty there, but there's a system stabilization, and you, I guess you'd have to look at, you know, cycling on and off versus, you know, getting in rush on and off of these compressors versus keeping them, some of them running at maybe a, a lower speed. Um, on that industrial rack I was talking about, I mean, that was that was their way of basically keeping it running without pumping it down when they had no load. With just a bypass scenario between, you know, gas cooler, flash tank, medium temp suction, and keeping the compressors from cycling off because they had absolutely no load, uh, you know, for 10 hours. But they didn't want to pump. You can't really. They could pump it, uh, not so much pump it, but shut it down as much as you can in the gas cooler and shut it off and just let it build up. But they were just recycling. Keeping it running. Yeah, the the other thing, like, is I've I've been me and Waylon were talking about this a little bit is uh, actually bypassing the gas cooler completely in super low ambience and just dumping it straight to the flash tank. Yeah, I mean that seems to be a, a available strategy that would be quite easy to implement. Yeah, he's done that in uh, in a couple of cases. And again, this job, he had recommend that to us as well. And uh, so our supermarket lab will, has that built in. So I design, had that designed in so we can understand those dynamics when it's super cold out. Uh, just bypass a gas cooler and see what happens, right? 
So one of the other things I wanted to talk about is, you know, we, we had an interesting conversation. Kevin, you brought this up, so I, I want you to lead it. But um, basically you were talking about how sometimes when you're running transcritical mode, like the oil separator on a coalescing doesn't seem to separate as much oil as what it, you know, what it does when it's when it's running a little bit lower of a pressure. And we were discussing it with, I was it was it Joe that was with us as well? Joe, Joe Zang, yeah. Yeah, yeah. So it was Joe, um, Waylon, and, and and Kevin. And I just I want to touch on that again because that was, man, that, that actually was yeah. really interesting. And I didn't get to catch all that conversation. So I yeah, just want to yeah. hear, hear your thoughts on what, you know, why you think that would potentially happen, especially with the coalescing. Yeah, because you've experienced that, eh, Kevin? Yeah, so like I've actually spent a lot of time sitting on a bucket watching this in in, in a rack room. Unfortunately, at two o'clock in the morning, <laughs> it's been a while. But uh, so like every time, like so we got a ton of TC stores up in Chicago. Uh, we have a chain that went uh, uh, went into it early on, and they seem to have like a ton of problems and it's carried over to everything new is every one of these coalescent filters. When we get above like a 90 degree ambient, like they, they seem to like cut their efficiency in like half, like they cannot separate uh, efficiently and, or the oil is getting picked back up out of the bottom of the separator before it drains and taken back out to the system. So, mm-hmm. My theory is this, that there's so much velocity in that separator when we're running transcritical that it's that filter element can't separate that fast enough. It can't efficiently separate it because the velocity is too high and or the oil at the bottom is getting picked up like a tornado and carried right back out the separator. Yeah. Uh, I checked, you know, we t- after we talked about this, I looked into it a little bit more as well. And uh, oil carryover rate is, is a funny thing. Um, you know, they, it, it can range from, depending on operating conditions, from nearly zero to 2%. That's a, that's, a big, that's a big delta. And even on some of the calorimeter tests that we've run, talking to our engineers and stuff that actually measure it, this is what they do when they qualify compressors. You know, they say, depending on the actual condition, subcritical, transcritical, um, your oil carryover rate changes. And in some cases, it can get up to, you know, over 1%, pushing even higher, depending on specific conditions. And what happens when, when that oil carryover rate gets a little bit higher than normal and it hits that coalescent filter, depending on the filter you're using, it may not be able to effectively separate it properly. Uh, impinge it and have it drain off properly. Um, it kind of gets clumped up with those those uh, particulates of oil, and now it starts to build pressure drop across the filter. And it was interesting because we did run some tests on different types of filter elements, and the pressure drop could go from five pounds across that element on a clean element with a high mass flow down to less than one psi, and um, so it's interesting, depending on the elements you have in the construction, the ability for it to manage the higher oil flow uh, can vary from one mig to another. So it's kind of interesting seeing that happen. And um, yeah, so it's uh, it can make a difference what you use, for sure, from, from an oil uh, 
separator and, and element perspective. Yeah, it's uh, usually most of the stores they don't get the sprinkler on the gas cooler. And as soon as you put get, as soon as you get a sprinkler on the gas cooler, I mean the oil problems like stop within like 10, 15 minutes. Like they uh, the separator starts efficiently separating. So then we we we've run into this problem where guys just think a sprinkler all the time is a you know the answer, which obviously the gas cooler is not going to last long with the sprinkler on it. No, so that's for sure. We did solve a lot of this with uh, a lot of gas. We had a lot of oil problems in the beginning, and a lot of it was uh, flash tank tuning. Like most of the flash tanks at these stores had like a fifty to seventy pound delta, and that that's generally what I see. Some of them are ninety to eighty pounds, like we're seeing at stores, because like none of them are getting tuned. Like they'll just get installed and they'll have an oem set point file in there and then nothing's tuned so we're seeing these flash tanks be like you know 50 60 pound deltas they're all over the place they're just they look like like mountains almost spiky lines on the flash tank pressure and the majority of these racks the oil system is set up where the the oil reservoir is draining into the flash tank so It is venting in there. So that is controlling your oil pressure. So what was yeah. happening is a lot of these stores, we were having problems in the beginning is um, the medium temp compressors wouldn't get oil when they would call to run or call for oil because the flash tank pressure would be low and then the oil vessel would be low and then it was too close to suction. If it doesn't have like a 40 pound delta between suction and the oil reservoir for some reason it doesn't seem like it feeds like normal compressors 20 pounds you're good but with co2 it seems like it needs a little bit more pressure behind it to push that oil in what's the what's the reason for what's the reason for that is it because you're trying to make up uh for the oil carryover like how easy the the uh missing missability is of the of the co2 and the oil is that the reason for it because i mean you know now you have two things that you really have to watch out for, you know, especially your super heat. Cause Kevin, as you stated uh, prior, like, you know, at 10 degrees of uh, super heat going back to that compressor, you're going to carry over so much more oil than like on a regular HFO system. Right. Yeah. Our, our medium temps uh, typically you know, ask for about 20 degrees super heat, you know, on the low temp is 36. Um, and that becomes, that becomes pretty important from a miscibility. And a vis- oil viscosity perspective, but um, yeah. Wait a minute. You said you said the the, the low temp was thirty six degrees of superheat. Yep. Then, then yep. like, because all the programming I'm seeing for the medium temp superheat for the uh, the uh, liquid injection is typically set for in between 30, 36 and fifty five degrees of superheat on the suction on the medium temp. What those compressors are supposed to be lower? Minimum. Minimum of uh, of twenty degrees. Actually, it's eighteen. Mm-hmm. You know, actually it's ten k or eighteen Fahrenheit okay. uh, on the medium temp. That's the minimum, and thirty six degree on the low temp. Hey guys, today's episode is sponsored by Westermeyer Industries serviceable oil floats. Many oil separators contain an oil float to effectively meter separated oil back to the compressors. Westermeyer Industries has taken this concept and perfected it with their new line of serviceable oil floats. These floats feature an improved design with fewer components, allowing for greater manufacturer consistency and up to 20% increased oil flow versus their legacy models. 
These floats also feature an integrated magnet to shield the oil path from debris and have been field-proven in supermarket applications. Westmeyer Industries offer replacement oil floats not only for their own separators, but also cross-compatible models for our competitor oil separators as well. You can find out more about the Westermeyer Industries serviceable oil floats by visiting westermeyerind.com backslash floats. Once again, that's westermeyerind.com slash float. Let's get on with the episode. Yeah. Kevin, are you seeing that for the liquid injection uh, program on the racks that you're seeing? Most of the liquid injection I see, like the the liquid injection is a kick into the medium temp suction is like 50 degrees. So 50 that would be super heat? Uh, no, of suction line temperature. So it'd be about 30 degrees or, of super heat, it'll kick in. Yeah. Yeah, about, yeah, just, about that. Just like an HFC system, I mean, return gas temperature is a direct influence on discharge from one to one ratio, right? So as long as your discharge temperatures are not out of whack, um, then that's why return gas temperatures, they can be a little bit higher. Even though we say a minimum of 20, the critical temperature is discharge temperature. So whatever that return gas temperature is to limit the discharge from exceeding its maximum point, then that, that becomes your maximum return gas temperature. But we have to establish what that minimum superheat is from a from a, uh, a dilution perspective. Gotcha. Uh, Andre, have you seen uh, much so far with the, uh, with the centrifugal oil separators on CO2? I just did my first one with Hill not too long ago. Yeah, I have not personally. Uh, I had a seminar um, that, uh, that, did, that uh, a gentleman did for our team at the Helix Innovation Center because we're doing some testing there. And we wanted to understand what the dynamics are and the difference between the coalescent and, and the centrifugal. And it seemed for the system size that we were testing, um, it made a lot of sense. Um, so you had some good luck with, uh, with it on a smaller capacity system. Is that right? Yeah, so far we did, uh, we did a uh, test Walmart store where they did a mini uh advancer flex rack and it was like one of the second or third with the uh it was a westermeyer centrifugal separator in there and i started this thing up with basically had the flash tank load and one coil Mm -hmm. and fucking worst case scenario like probably the lowest load it's gonna have thing had not never missed a beat not one oil issue always kept a you know ball floating in it like zero issues. We got it loaded up. We ended up on like a, ended up being like a 70 degree day there. The last day I was there thing was running full load. I mean, zero issues from, from a serviceability standpoint, it looks to me that that seems like a, a better option than a, than a filtered separator on the CO2 side, just for the fact that as your velocity increases, that separator is going to get more efficient. Mm-hmm. Is that it worked well, right? And it worked well at low ambient still because we right. still had a decent amount of velocity going through there. But I mean, from a, from a serviceability standpoint, I mean, I, I, I would think the centrifugals get, would, would just kill it in CO2 just for the fact that, I mean, when we're moving more oil in the middle of summer 
I mean, that thing's going to be separating more, or it should be right. at least. Yeah, due to its design principle. Yeah. Yep, that makes sense. Yeah, they, from from the presentation I had, it, it made a lot of sense as well for uh, what we were looking at. So you keep talking about this place out in Ohio where you, you guys are doing the the whole training center, this whole training lab or whatever. Um, do you have on on this thing like you keep saying we're testing different things? Does that mean like you have like two or three oil separators on the system and you're selecting on which which way it's going through? Or like I mean, when you're saying you're I'm just I'm as you're talking, I'm yeah. just envisioning I was, he's got some mad scientist shit out out there, and I, I just I yeah. want to go out there now. <laughs> Well, what, what we're, yeah, there's all kinds of things that are being tested at the same time, obviously, but um, we're, we're actually, a lot of testing we're doing is with transcritical scroll. So we've got transcritical scroll condensing units in our facility um, that uh, were built from our European office. We don't make them here in North America, but um, we, we imported these condensing units to understand their dynamics, the controls, the how the transcritical scroll value is and how it works and all that kind of stuff and oil carryover rate. So we need to test it ourselves. Plus we designed our own transcritical scroll unit, built it uh, and run a whole bunch of different tests in different modes. And we have one mode called flash tank VI, which is a variable flash tank pressure. And I've heard you talk about this before, Kevin, and Brett about you know the value of possibly having a variable flash tank pressure so that's one mode of operation. And then there's another mode of operation that if you want your flash tank to be steady, then we'll put an economizer on this thing and we can get you a flash tank that's steady. So, so those are kind of testing that we're doing right now in understanding the dynamics of uh, oil separation for ourselves. So we run into different tests in different scenarios. You said so – Oh, sorry. Go ahead, Kevin. Uh, so the, these condensing units, would this be like a – like a one-off you thing, like for like a restaurant or convenience store, like something smaller, or would this be like handling multiple loads because it's variable speed and it could go up and down? Yes and yes. Um, the uh, the I guess the most cost-effective way right now for a CO two transcritical condenser unit with one compressor that scroll can go from twenty hertz to ninety hertz. It's got a really wide range of capacity. So for a lineup, a small lineup of cases, that makes a whole lot of sense um, because CO2 units will be more expensive naturally than an than a HFC unit. Uh, but someone that has sustainability goals and net zero goals and they want to go that way, then that, that's a good way to go. So that's one option to single compressor. But there's also a lot of uh, uh, interest in, you know, paralleling these maybe two or three of these things. Now, now you've got a mini transcritical scroll pack or a mini booster pack. Now you've got distributed refrigeration from a remodel perspective and it starts to make a lot of sense. We're hearing a lot of buzz about that and the need and want for that in the near future. I mean, yeah, it seems like a great like application for like convenience stores, like smaller, uh, like yeah. smaller supermarkets where they could, you know, utilize that. Now is it, are these like 90 bar systems, 120 bar? Yeah. Yeah, so the the unit that came from Europe was a 90-bar low-side suction, and all of the OEMs that we're talking to right now about the transcritical scroll, I mean, they're not playing around. They're designing all these things in 90-bar standstill, low-side, and 130-bar on the high-side. 
because they know that these things can cycle off for a weekend and they don't want to have to worry about losing a charge. So everybody seems to be looking at that 90 bar low side standstill. So you, you said this was a single compressor and this is a brand new transcritical scroll. So my question is, um, mm -hmm. you said flash tank. So obviously you have the flash tank. So your suction pressure and your flash tank pressure are going to be at two different pressures. So are you telling me there's almost like a vapor injection line on the yeah. scroll? Are so, you laughing? Am I wrong? No, no, you're at your bang on. If you're familiar with the, the, uh, the vapor injected refrigeration scroll that we have with the, you know, the port, on the side that injects midway through the compression cycle. But we've taken that and we've applied it to CO2. So instead of using a parallel compressor to manage the excess flash gas coming from the tank, that excess flash gas goes into that port and gets digested in the compression cycle. So what it's doing is instead of sending that, of course, bypass to through your bypass valve to medium temp suction and you know increasing all that load, it's doing it midway through the compression. So there's an efficiency gain by doing that. So how, well, how do you, I mean, how how is that size then? Like, I mean, is there a standard, I, I mean, it's gonna get into some engineering, but I mean, is there a standard flash tank load when you're dealing with a convention? Like, let's just say you're dealing with, uh, you know, Absolutely. Ten, 10 tons, 10 tons. If you're dealing with 10 tons, is it always going to be a certain BTUs of that 10 tons that's going to be needed for the flash tank, even in, you know, transcritical and, and subcritical mode? I mean, obviously, transcritical mode is going to be more, but I'm sorry. Go ahead, talk. Yeah, no, no, we have to account for that. So a typical system, typical booster system, for example, you may have 45% at, at your peak condition in the summer, 95 degree gas cooler out, you might have 40, 45% of your compressors running just to manage that flash tank. That bypass mass flow is nearly 50% of your total mass flow for your system. So you still have to take that into consideration when you're selecting um, that for injection. And it's part of the software, right? You've got X amount of BTUs, your, here's your gas cooler out temperature, that's going to create, and this is the flash tank pressure you want to manage. It's going to create X amount of percentage of flash gas, and you need to bleed X amount off into that compressor, and that compressor needs to be able to handle that load. So it's all calculated in the software. So does, Yeah, does and Brett, I mean, yeah, on a single unit, like, it wouldn't be as bad. I mean, because if, if they're designing for uh, 90 bar on the low side, I mean, they're not going to blow off uh, – a receiver pressure relief like you would on a rack. Let's say if a you know a flash gas gets a little high and gets up to six hundred on a rack, you're popping the relief. It's if it's running you know six hundred on that, it's it is kind of is what it is and it'll come down. No, you're right. I mean, with the flash tank VI version with a floating flash tank, we can float that flash tank to nearly sixty bar, say nearly eight hundred and seventy pounds. So we don't get get about fifty eight bar actually something like that. So you can imagine when you're floating to 58 bar, you're not generating that much extra flash gas than if you're you have to if you've got a you know a 45 bar flat or excuse me a 30 bar flash tank. That's a big I mean, difference. That, yeah, that, that would give you more compressor capacity at the same time because you you don't have that load on there. So I mean that that, right. that could 
will be used for peak compressor capacity to, you know, give you a little bit more oomph. Yeah. Do we, do we yeah. still have a do we still have a BGV on the on the on the line? Because I mean, if you're not running that compressor nearly, uh, if you're running it real fast, so there's not much load because you're still in subcritical, you could actually yeah. tend to back that up some. So there's still a bypass gas valve on there. Correct. And you get to a point where your flash tank gets to a point where you're going to shut it off. It's a solenoid in that bypass line, not the bypass line, in the injection line. It's just a two-way solenoid valve. Really? So when you when your flash tank gets to a certain point, you turn that solenoid off because you're you're not generating enough flash gas to do any good. So turn it off and just trim the flash tank with the bypass valve going to suction. And you're not going to damage the, the intermediate part of that scroll because you're not feeding with a cool vapor at that point? Nope. No, it's been designed to handle that. Get the hell out. Yeah. So obviously the year is still testing this, but like, what's the ETA to start seeing these scrolls out, these like full-size scrolls out in like, uh, the advancer racks and like other, other full-size racks? Yeah, it'll be a... It'll be about a year from now because even though there's some European voltages that, well, there's one European voltage, 450 hertz. <laughs> Not very useful for here in the U.S., 400 volts and 50 hertz. So uh, we're in the motor development stage here in the U.S., 208, 230. Oh, no. Andre, I think I lost you. You're paused. No. No. Damn it. Oh, there you go. Got you now. Yeah, sorry about that. I was about to have a car in there. I'm like, this is going so well, and we're getting lots of stuff out, and then all of a sudden, <laughs> All right, we lost you. Uh, motor motor design. I was freaking out today because my internet got changed today. So I just upgraded my internet today. Now upgrade, it's debatable. So I'm actually running off my phone because I was freaking out because my home internet's been turning on and off all day and it's brand new. It's supposed to be three times the speed. So um, anyway, <laughs> I apologize for that. No, you're fine. You're fine. We, we lost you at... We deal with that on a weekly basis anyway. Yeah, Kevin lives up in Indiana, and they don't have internet up there. His kids are up on the roof, uh, covered in tinfoil, getting him a signal. So I get it. Kev, where do we lose him at? I, I forgot. I was really upset. Uh, motor design. You guys are designing motor, uh, redesigning motors for it? Yeah, that's right. So that's what we're working on right now is developing. Now, one thing about compressor motors, it, <laughs> it it's incredibly involved. Uh, it's because of the mo the overload protection and because you all you guys know that these motors operate at all kinds of different operating uh, points in the envelope and that, that thermal overload's got to work perfect at every spot where it could trip. So it's a lot more detailed in developing a motor than just say throw a two, two weight volt motor in there and the way you go. So it takes about a year of development plus, you know, months of testing on our calorimeter on our test stands. So it'll be about a year before we actually have them out. But that being said, our OEMs are testing um, the 400 volt, 50 hertz version, want to drive. So um, we are getting experience with that product, and so are we. 
so that when the time comes and the motors are available, the OEMs will be ready. So are these scrolls, the, 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 you said variable, are they on a VFD or are they on, are they, have, are they a digital unloading type thing? No, no, this is a BPM motor. Um, so they are on a, a variable speed from, like I say, 20 to 90 hertz. Um, the maximum capacity is somewhere around 130, 135,000 BTUs at a plus 20 at 90 hertz. Kind of give me an idea the size of these things. Mm -hmm. You know, 16 cubic inch up to 36 cubic inch. So we're pretty excited about it. So and and this is just just for just for medium temp, right? Just for medium temp right now. Um, the team uh, is working on a low temp version, but uh, we're we're not at the sampling stage yet. So we're we're focusing on medium temp. Gotcha. Well, I mean, I don't even know how that how that would how that would work unless you you know you could basically size your low temp load. Oh no, because you'd have to have even more capacity. Because if if the flash tank is basically could be upwards of half of what your load is, right? Then that means right. you would need even more more load to pull out. So that that would would be a two compressor system, right? It's a large compression ratio, um, a lot of pressure to to overcome from two hundred pounds to possibly fourteen fifteen hundred pounds at two hundred pounds at minus twenty to fourteen hundred pounds dead of the summer. That, that's a lot of lift. Um, mm -hmm. That's a lot of stress on bearings and, and everything else. So that's a, it's a special one, that's for sure. So going to be a two compressor system then? Uh, it could be two compressor or uh, a two stage, yeah. Because the only the only systems I know is what what's it Revacold. Revacold is one of the ones that that has you know it's just a two compressor system. Uh, yeah. And then what, what was the other one we saw at AHR, Kev? Um, I can't remember that other manufacturer. The one we couldn't understand. <laughs> uh, I'm not sure. I don't remember. But yeah, they, those were two compressor systems. Okay. But and they were using like little fractional horse compressors. Yes, they were like little, they were like little Hitachi's. Like little Hitachi okay. uh, scroll or that they were uh, like mini screws almost. Little rotaries. Yeah, little rotaries, like the little window yeah. air conditioner one, which surprises yeah. me that those things can handle that. Yeah. Yeah, well, I mean, sure. the, the one compressor is basically, you know, the the low temp compressor is going to be the equivalent of what a four ten a compressor, right? Yeah. Like, is there is there much is there much difference, Andre, with the design between you know a low temp low temp scroll and a four ten a compressor? I mean, essentially the, almost the same compression ratio. Yeah, the compression ratios are close. The embodiment is the same embodiment per se. Of course, the scroll form is going to be different, and the bearings are going to be slightly different. Uh, but from an embodiment and almost the motor, everything is. A little bit tweak, but it's you know it's fairly close to a 410 type product from a low temp. Um, like I say, from I mean a, Hills from using four ten, they're using 410 digitals for all the uh, like low temp stuff. They're using this the 410 mm -hmm. like standard digital compressor. Really? Yep. Yeah, our ZO, our ZO is uh, is our digital. Yeah, low temp version. 
Anything else you wanted to bring up with, with Andre while we have him on the horn, Kev? Mm. Trying to I think, think here. I check about the oil. The oil guys, uh, the 68 and 85 for Zeo scrolls. Yeah. Um, they are approved for both 68 and 85. You we may have you may have mentioned that before, but uh, they are. Yeah, like we we you know it's weird because we talked about it for a little bit, and then we we saw the the bulletin come out, and but you had said that bulletin had been out for a while, yeah, yeah. like about the about the sixty eight the sixty eight uh, weight. Yep, yeah. sixty eight and eighty five. They're approved yeah. for both. Yeah. With the higher weight oil, is there more carryover or less carryover when we're running transcritical? No, there's no more or less. Um, as far as that goes, there's no difference as far as carryover. Just a vi different viscosity at a specific point. What, I'm sorry. What, what do you mean by that? I'm sorry. You said you, so. The 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 heavier the is it like the heavier the viscosity, the less carryover, just because it's a heavier weight yeah, oil, or nice. how does that work? It's the same. No, it's the same. Oh, okay. The same. That's all. That's all I got right now. I'm. I'm uh... <laughs> <laughs> Andre, is there anything you wanted to talk about before we uh, we 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 hit the end button here? Uh, anything you want to bring up? Anything you got going on that you wanted to talk about? Well, I kind of mentioned it. Uh, I think throughout what what's been going on, um, I, one one of the things that I I do see that um, I suppose from a collaboration perspective, um, I don't know what you guys are seeing, but the industry is going through a lot of a lot an increased amount of collaboration it seems like at every level from from the from the contractors to the OEMs to the consulting engineers even to the end user with with all these refrigerant regulations coming on board the speed at which co2 equipment's moving the sustainability targets that our customers are having uh, the energy they're trying to reduce, all these things are happening at once very, very quickly. And I get the feeling that customers, the industry as a whole is, try, is, is figuring out that we can't all do this alone. We've got to collaborate more now than we ever have if we collectively want to move forward faster. And, and I see the next couple of years is uh, is not going to slow down. It's going to it's going to speed up and increase. So it's a good thing. Obviously, uh, more more of us are talking. More of us are are sharing stories and collaborating um, on a whole range of topics. So it's kind of cool. So I mean, I know this isn't a CO two question, but I mean, what are you what are your thoughts on the tech shortage? Uh, I know, I know. You know, you talked to Brian Beitler, and and he he's really big and and trying to get you know get the kids in he said uh it's funny he said he was at a at a middle school the other day uh doing doing a presentation trying to get people involved with trying to do you know uh refrigeration and stuff and he said he learned two things he said one i need to learn i need to bring more candy next time and the second <laughs> thing he learned was uh that uh <laughs> that he needs to you know do uh be some kind of influencer or whatever because he he said that over there they had a he said the busiest table there was like a, a YouTube a YouTube guy that was out there, which I thought was just the funniest thing. Um, so, but I mean, other than you know trying to get everyone trained up, because I mean, with the tech shortage, guys are guys are jumping ship for a couple of dollars, 
um, because mm -hmm. we're in so high of demand. Um, so, I mean, professionally, I mean, you've been in the industry, you know, quite a while. What, what are your thoughts? Well, yeah, the biggest challenge is <laughs> the biggest challenge is getting new people interested in the trade, which, which is a big it's a big challenge to begin with, as you know, our trade is so small that if your kids aren't coming in because they know you were in or you've got a, a cousin or something. Um, so from the school, it's a challenge because they get pushed to go to, to university instead of, you know, pursuing a vacation, vocational uh, school. So that that's number one challenge. How do we get more people in there? And I think more of us have to, again, collaborate on, on ideas and get together as an industry to try to tackle this. And I know NASRC has been trying to work on that. That's that, the recruitment is one phase. I think the other phase is, is companies like ours and our competitors have to get better at, I like to, I, I don't like to use the term plug and play, but you know what I mean is make things easier and auto configurable and easier to troubleshoot. Um, there'll always be the need for high quality service troubleshooting guys. That's for sure. They will always be there. But the run of the mill things that someone walks into a machine room, doesn't know where to start because they're so new is what kind of tools can we can provide those, those, those techs that are, unfortunately, they get thrown out into a middle of a job that they don't have the experience for. We got to be better at providing those tools for them. From from a from a equipment supplier perspective, um, so and I've been harping on that for years that uh, you know we make the equipment, uh, so we you know we we need to kind of collectively figure that out. I don't know if that that rings a bell with you at all, but um, that's on my side where I think we we could try to help. Well, I'll give you an example. You know, you, you hit the nail on the head with, you know, about the, you know, trying to get more people in, in, involved and interested in the trade at a younger age and break break the stigma about, you know, you can't make any money doing, you know, one of the vocational trades, which is very incorrect. And so I quick story, my my I put my my daughter on the bus one time and uh, you know, she comes home later that day. She's like, Daddy, how comes we can live here? And she's twelve at the time. Okay. I was like, what do you mean? And she's like, well, a little boy asked me what you did for a living because he saw that you got got in your truck uh, for work after you after you got me on the bus, and he, you know, he she asked uh, the kid asked my daughter, you know, what does your daddy do for a living? HVAC. Well, you guys don't make enough money to live on this block, and like you know, a twelve year old didn't come up with that on his own head, right? So you know that came yeah. from the parents. So like just breaking that stigma of like you yeah. know. It, this is a great trade to get into. There's tons of potential to, to make a lot of money. It's, it, it's all what you put into it, right? Yep. I mean, it, you know, the, the, the payback that you get is incredible. If you're willing to put, you know, put the licks in when you're, when you're younger and, you know, learn all you can and try to be the best of what you can. It, it doesn't take entirely much to, to really be good at this trade as long as you put the work into it. No, absolutely. No, I agree. Yeah, it's, it's, it's a challenge still that we need to, to overcome, uh, for sure. On that note, Andre, I'm going to thank you very much for coming on here. Kev, is there anything else you want to uh, ask before we let him go? No, I think we got we got a pretty good good one in. We'll have to have him back on another time. 
Definitely, hundred percent. I appreciate appreciate it, guys. Uh, it was great meeting you at AHR, and uh, thanks for having me on. Appreciate it. Absolutely, boss. Thank you again. Hey, guys, have Take a good care. night. Yep. Good night.